Welcome, one and all, to another episode of Left Turn Canada. Andy Burkowski here, Christo Avalis, providing you a leftist perspective on what's going on in Canadian news. Christo and I usually spend an hour opining on whatever we really want to with some input from y'all, but this week we decided we need to get an expert in on what has been happening here in Canada, specifically with the coronavirus and, and the impact of that. We have Nora Loretto, who's famously from the Sandia, Sandy and Nora podcast, Canadian journalist here. She has the Take Back the Fight podcast, part of the Harbinger Network. Nora, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, guys. Uh, we just we really wanted to kind of go in with with your new book. Yes, uh, because mm-hmm. we've talked a lot about about COVID. We've talked a lot about um you know, the failures of policy uh, on the medical side and on the, you know, the social assistance side. And, you know, you have this new project out, Spin Doctors, How Media and Politicians Misdiagnosed the COVID-19 Pandemic. And we really just wanted to kind of pick your brain about this this crisis, this failure, uh, mm-hmm. and, and what that means, you know, because COVID isn't over, of course, but also mm-hmm. what it means for healthcare, for, for labor organizing and for, you know, Canadian society more broadly. So, I mean, like, what's like, what's the thesis of the project? Like what's the research Mm -hmm. question and thesis? I know that's not always (laughs) an easy one to answer, but. Well, in this case, it's not that difficult. It's that the real story of the pandemic was being kept from average people and the impact was far more suffering, far more death and far, far more, negative impacts, I guess, on average people than the government is willing to admit. There we go. Okay. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> Not yeah. bad, eh? Starting yeah. off, starting off positive. You've yeah, done no. this before. Imagine that. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's, that's big. You know, that's, that's a big accusation. That's the clearly, yeah. you know, something that ripples out, you know, what do you think if you had to, and this is kind of an old cliche, but if you had to pick one of the more startling facts that you think most Canadians should be aware of what happened here in Canada while we dealt with this pandemic that you think most Canadians aren't aware, you know, what do you think that would be? Well, the book has a lot of very startling facts that people are probably not aware of, but I think that the overarching thing that is the most important is that like government had the power to do more and they didn't and they didn't not because it was moving too fast and not because it was just too unclear about what they were supposed to do but they had the power to stop mass death and they didn't and depending on what government we're talking about um you know in western canada things got even worse for a third wave a wave where people had been vaccinated uh and and they and they could have put the lid on it and they didn't Uh, with the federal government, they had the power to use the emergencies act to do a whole bunch of things. Not, not like, like I, you know, personally, I think that they should have used the emergency act, um, to be a little bit more aggressive with controlling the virus, but stuff like just using the emergencies act to like circumvent provincial health policy or health, um, jurisdiction to insist that uniform data is collected, like something as basic as that. And they didn't do that. And, you know, I think that part of the way that the pandemic has been spun is that these things were very, very difficult to do or impossible. And that's what I explore in the book is how much did who know when 
And what did journalists do to challenge official narratives? And by and large, journalists either weren't capable or didn't have the resources necessarily to really be able to cut into the spin that, that the politicians were, were delivering. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great point. I mean, we spent a lot of time talking about like workers in particular. And I know you mm-hmm. went, as soon as you mentioned Western Canada, I thought about, you know, Cargill and a lot of the, the, the meat plant workers. And here in Ontario, a lot of the logistics workers and how, you know, it was very clear that these companies were uh, at the very least negligent, if not, you know, complicit in the sickness and death of their workers. And it just seems like not enough was being done to either prevent that or and or you know hold someone to account after these things were happening like we have we amazon mm-hmm. you know amazon alone right amazon and cargill alone and in addition to all the other companies just you know operated and and, and the workers suffered so so much right mm-hmm. like it, was, it was wild like yeah and and it, you know it's those companies but it's also pure later in canada post it's also mm-hmm. all of the tar sands companies you know cnrl being the top of the list for deaths and Suncor, um, you know, there was like the only mass industry shutdown that happened during the pandemic was the construction industry in Quebec in the first wave. And it was the only province that even shut down the construction industry. And after the first wave in Quebec, like the rest of Canada, no massive industry shutdowns happened. And so there was no ability for a lot of Canadians to keep themselves safe from the pandemic. You know, Mm -hmm. there was, um, there was a study that was done by the BC Centers for Disease Control that was published in May of 2020, and it got almost no media coverage. I found it in some local community newspapers in BC, and they surveyed something like 500,000 people, and they asked, are you following social distancing um, measures and public health orders? And something like 97% said they were. And then when they asked the same question, are you following these orders at work? The percentage dropped to 40, 47%. Mm. And with such a a large uh, sample of responses and something that made so much obvious sense in May 2020, the fact that that didn't become national news, I thought was very, very shocking. And just like such a great example of where people's priorities were, which was not to actually stop the spread of COVID, but to like at all costs protect the status quo. So at all costs, protect profit, protect people who have have power, make sure the liberals maintain their, their power and do everything possible to download the blame either to the provinces or to municipalities or to individuals themselves. Yeah. On those individuals, I think this is such a great point. Like, I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the media coverage, and this is where, you know, it's like a mixture of the media, maybe not having the resources, but in other cases, just maybe you know, downright doing propaganda, like doing for the government. But mm-hmm. I remember so much coverage on, on, you know, individual failures, mm-hmm. yeah. people having parties and, and look, I don't want to downplay that. Like personally, we, we, you know, in my household, we did our very best to socially distance. And I don't want to suggest that individual uh, actions don't play a role, but it seems like everything was being done, not just to ignore how most people were getting COVID from work, but like how it was like never the employer's fault and always just like individuals. And I know that got mixed in with racism, you know, specifically in places like Brampton where a lot of these logistics workers work. And the fact that they worked in uh, 
essential industries was ignored and all of it was sort of, you know, gestured towards the fact that these are South Asian communities and, and, and it's the, them, them not socially distancing and and like, and the media played an essential role Mm -hmm. in propagating this, this, these lies. I don't know if you saw that yourself. Uh, That was a casual observation for me. Right. Yeah, no, that's literally my chapter five <laughs> is talking about how we downloaded this, these issues to, to, to individuals. And in that chapter, I talk about um, this long CBC feature about how gatherings, private gatherings in fall of 2020 were really amping up the second wave. And so the second wave at that time in all parts of Canada, almost all parts of Canada, I mean, Atlantic Canada did actually manage to control the spread of the virus much better than anywhere else in Canada. Mm-hmm. But in most, most of Canada, the fall was, was you know, pushing people back indoors. And so, of course, COVID was on the rise. And so there's this one article from CBC and they like analyze these like partying and weddings and, and funerals and personal gatherings that were driving the pandemic. And the, the overarching theme was that it was young people partying. So yeah. young people who were out, uh, you know, at uh, university bars or whatever. And in the article, they link to a winter star story about a super cluster from families who were getting together. And so, and it was a cluster that I was aware of because Windsor Public Health had actually used this as an example to say, look how fast this spreads. And so I go to the link and not one person in this cluster of people who got COVID were between the ages of 20 and 39, (laughs) not one. And the whole article was about how young people were being, uh, were partying too much. And so it's just that kind of journalism. It's just so lazy. Like all you have to do is look at the ages of the individuals in the literal article you linked (laughs) to here. Um, and instead it's like, oh no, it's just young people partying. I was like, no, in this case it was families disobeying public health orders, you know, but then again, it's not even like that is as egregious as anything that happened in the agricultural business, the food processing business, or, uh, obviously residential care. And, um, and one of the things that I was very struck by that no journalists picked up at all. And of course it didn't come become part of the public discussion among politicians, uh, which was worker mobility. And the role that worker mobility played in propagating the virus. We knew that worker mobility in long-term care was, yeah. was spreading COVID. Yeah. But, you know, there was an article in the Toronto Star um, from, you know, someone who's covering uh, these large workplace outbreaks. And they wrote, uh, so-and-so is trying to pick up extra shifts at Amazon and decided that it wasn't worth it because he was too worried and he had another full-time job. And is like, okay, sorry, can you follow that thread? What do you mean he has yeah. another full-time job? Like, yeah. how is anybody allowed to work in multiple workplaces right now? Yeah. Uh, oh, of course they are allowed because the government's not going to pay for them to not yeah. need to work in multiple work- workplaces. So it's stuff like that that was very hidden from uh, the public view that had a huge impact on how COVID propagated. Now, do you think that, because in this case, when there is malfeasance we're dealing with deaths on a scale that we don't normally see when government officials lie or when uh, members of the mainstream media are lazy in your coverage and analysis of what happened here in Canada do you think that there is a sense of real responsibility on the part of government officials 
more so than perhaps the mainstream media that didn't hold them accountable. Like when we are trying to see where the check is due with with what happened here and so many thousands of people dying due to this negligence. Like I, I just wonder about hearing Doug Ford say the same bylines that we then saw for a month and a half in the CBC, you know, I, Mm -hmm. I'm wondering where this, this, this circle of, of death really started in your opinion, where most of the blame ultimately, you know, has to lie. Well, you know, we live in a democracy. And so ultimately the the blame does lie with politicians. We can't blame journalists for not finding the magic recipe to force politicians to suck less. But do you think there was many instances of, you know, not just laziness, but of something that could be considered almost equal and perhaps not equally, but also criminal? I think that politicians uh, played journalists, and yeah. I think that the, the 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 conditions that journalists found themselves in were were very difficult to continue doing normal reporting. So there were more than two thousand journalism jobs lost in twenty twenty, mm. uh, which had a huge impact on coverage. The, there was a, a crisis in advertising revenue, which also had a huge um, impact on coverage. You had the CBC, which has an annual operating budget of what, $2.9 billion, which is equal to the profit, the net profits of Rogers. <laughs> and CBC didn't get any, any COVID relief funding. There was no special package of funding for the CBC. They couldn't use the, the wage subsidy. They didn't get any extra money. And so the CBC already run by conservatives who have an interest in up, upholding the status quo. Um, you know, so at the top, you have them squeezed and at the bottom, you have them squeezed. And so obviously the quality of the reporting was going to be affected. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have, you know, companies like Rogers and Bell and TELUS and, and Quebec or uh, that, made a lot of money off of the wage subsidy that, you know, had Mm. collective profits of something like $8 billion. And then you have Rogers taking in $120 million from the wage subsidy bill, taking in something similar and Mm, at the same time laying people off. So, you know, it's, it's one thing to, to, to look at the coverage of an individual journalist and say that probably led to death (laughs) and maybe it did in some cases. Um, I, I'm thinking of like the way journalists covered the Roberta Place outbreak in Barrie, which is owned by Jarlette Health Services. This was covered as the as the first variant outbreak. It was January 2021, and the cases were mounting rapidly. And every single journalist that covered it covered it through the lens of this is the alpha variant. Oh my God! Right. Mm-hmm. Mid-January, the Ministry of Long-Term Care like has an inspection report and finds that this facility is still not cohorting patients with COVID away from patients without COVID, letting COVID positive patients wander all over the facility and bunking people together. And, and, and that comes out, but it comes out in local news. It doesn't actually pierce this whole national narrative that this mass death is the result of the, the, the variant. And had we had a different media analysis that actually no management was again, negligent. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we'd be able to turn the, the, the tide on that. But at the end of the day, again, this is a health facility that after almost a full year of the pandemic, we're still doing the basics that would have propagated COVID much further. And then in the end, you know, more than uh, 70 people died at that facility. So I, 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 I tried to be nuanced with my analysis to show that journalists are workers at the end of the day, and they're not serving uh, anyone other than, I mean, their bosses and what they think the truth is, but journalists 
management and then certainly the owners, were they in collusion with the politicians? Well, they're on the same side anyway. So yes, (laughs) by default they were. Did they have to have like secret conversations? I don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised, but I don't know. It all flows one direction. It all flows in one direction, (laughs) right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Man, I just, just one thing, Crystal, I think perhaps the biggest impact that uh, you've maybe had, Nora, during the pandemic was the coverage and analysis of what was going on in the long-term healthcare facilities and, you know, really finding that those uh, micro and macro important details that kind of painted a greater picture, you know, for those that aren't aware, what was it like in, from your analysis uh, in Canada during the the height of the pandemic for many residents that were living in uh, these facilities? Mm -hmm. Uh, Horrifying. Absolutely horrifying. I, I, I interviewed a personal care worker who works at a facility in Kitchener-Waterloo and she described for me, um, the feeling of zipping up body bags for bodies that were still warm and having to cart them out, uh, and putting them into the elevator and feeling the heat radiating through the bag. Um, she described knowing that people were dying because of dehydration and they were just literally in, it was too, much work with the person that they were trying to save to be able to leave and get someone else a glass of water. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then to hear the description of the, of the sounds of death. Um, now this is a facility that didn't have, um, mass death in the way that Roberta place had mass death or tender care or Day Saint Dorothe in Laval. So it's not even death. like Those an places. exceptional case, right? Yeah. It's like, it's no, pretty this typical. Was, yeah, this was very typical. This place I believe had something like 20 deaths maybe, maybe a couple more. Um, but again, but people were dying not because of COVID, but because of the stress that the pandemic was placing on, on the residents, on the staff, especially. And, and so, um, you know, the data says that, uh, like, certainly the data that I've collected, uh, puts an average number of death per facility where there was a death related to COVID at about 10 deaths per facility, Wow. but that goes really high. Like that goes very horrifically high to 103 in Quebec at Saint-Dorothée, where they didn't even have oxygen to treat people. And so people were being treated with morphine with, for respiratory illness rather than being given oxygen because they just literally didn't have what they needed. Jesus. And when I was going through these stories every single night um, and you know, from like in May and June, April, May, June, 2020, December and January, 2021, I would be logging hundreds of deaths every night, hundreds. Yeah. And it would take me hours. I mean, I would, I would, you know, take me up to three hours of just searching and searching and searching to place these deaths. And, um, I think that there's a, there's a theoretical side to this that people understand that, you know, 18,000 deaths happening within the walls of residential care in this country is a disaster and 18,000 people is a lot of people and whatever. But I also think that because the reporting was so surface and because, critical voices were systemically shut out of the coverage that we have not been forced to hear these stories enough. And all we've really heard are what Aaron Durfel at the, at the Montreal Gazette broke at the, in the Heron residence, which was the first one that had big news like this. And then the military reports Yeah, as if the military reports weren't describing what care is like in a lot of these facilities. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, ahead, certainly. Crystal, yeah, no, 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 100%. Because <laughs> I mean, I, a moment there, yeah. you think you hear a lot. And I mean, it, you know, that was, I think a lot of people would say, like, if we did hear about COVID, it was the LTC issues. But I think, as you noted, is even that that coverage was 
was limited for a variety of factors, but yeah, that's, that imagery is it's, it's, it's horrifying. Right. And, yeah. and yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I, I don't know what else to say. I mean, well, one yeah, thing- well, I guess I could just add yeah. to that. Yeah. Mark, Cause I, what do you think that, uh, cause you were, I think one of the, the strongest voices at the time that was doing that. There wasn't a lot of other people in Canada that were logging those daily deaths. And, you know, when you're looking at it kind of from a macro perspective, what does, you think you said those 18,000 deaths, what does that say, I guess, about the Canadian response to this terrible pandemic? Do you think that it's, there's something uniquely uh, awful about what happened in these facilities, or is it just something perhaps uniquely awful about this, this horrible, you know, virus that, that does this when you're looking at it from that perspective, you know, what, what does that number and those daily numbers really say about what happened here in Canada? Yeah. Well, so just so folks know, I'm still collecting that data, right? The deaths have not stopped. No, you're right. They've slowed. And every night I'm maybe adding three to 10, depending on how much time passes between the two, because I also have stopped doing it every single night because the reporting is just such that, you know, it's much easier to go a couple of nights at a time because uh, otherwise you're just kind of searching for nothing. Um, it definitely demonstrates how little people with disabilities in this country are valued by the state. Um, because mm-hmm. first and foremost, this was a virus that targeted and killed disabled people and it didn't have to, yeah. um, that's, I think the most important message is that it, it didn't have to, that if there was any supports provided to disabled people, there would have been lives saved. And, you know, when you look at the wage subsidy or sorry, when you look at the, at the CERB, um, the fact that they cut people off at $5,000 as an income floor meant that the poorest people didn't have any money at all. And so if the poorest people include disabled people, and then you add to that, the fact that the federal government only offered disabled people $600 total. And these are individuals who had to have more PPE, who had to have more money to find other personal care workers when, you know, the personal care worker was no longer allowed to go from facility to facility and this kind of thing. Right. Uh, it's, it was absolutely horrifying. And the way that this whole pandemic has been spun to be, um, just this unavoidable tragedy of elderly people dying, um, completely erases the fact that, that it was first and foremost, disabled people dying. Because if you look at like residential care, long-term care is where you've got the most help, right? Where you've got people who need the most help to live. The retirement residences are not like they're, they skew a little bit younger, but not by a lot. There's still like 95 year olds and hundred year olds living in retirement residences. It's a question of how much autonomy you have. And the fact that the deaths were so high in long-term care and were lower in retirement residences was one example of how this was first and foremost, um, killing disabled people and the ableism within society in general, and with specifically within how Canada reacted, um, absolutely led to more deaths. Yeah. hundred percent. Like, I mean, I still remember that, you know, you need to make $5,000 a year to, to get CERB. And I was like, that's, that's not an accident, right? Like that Mm -hmm. was that was the government saying to disabled people, to poor people, like go die, I guess. Right. Like, like, like that was like, it was shocking to me, not shocking at all, but it, it was, it was uh, infuriating and, and a surprisingly large enough amount of people just sort of went along with it, 
even though it was very clearly a policy designed to uh, hurt the least fortunate amount of pe- uh, people. Uh, it, it, absolutely crazy. And I think that's a great point too, because, and this is something that I, you know, catch myself forgetting is that it's, it's not only senior citizens that live in long-term care facilities, right? You know, it's yeah. not only older people. There are people of all ages that have to live in these facilities. Because as Nora said, uh, says, uh, it's about, you know, needing help and assistance to kind of live with dignity. Uh, and uh, they, they weren't able to do so. Well, we never even got the statistics of how many people died in adults assisted living or group homes or other facilities for disabled people in Ontario until Megan Linton did the research herself. Mm. And, and she's a, she's a, an activist and a researcher who's amazing and people should check out her work. Um, but she kind of like insisted and insisted and insisted. And then finally the NDP posed the questions that we finally got the numbers of how many people died within, uh, these, these kind of these, they're not just group homes. There's, there's a whole list of different names that you can call them, but I think probably most people will think of group homes. And so when they gave the list out to, so when the NDP got the list based on the questions that they asked and they give it to Megan and Megan gives it to me to write a story about this, this was back in June of 2021. So this past year. Um, I call the ministries to double check all the numbers and I had to deal with three different ministries because they're operated by the ministry of of municipal services. They're operated by ministry of health and operated by, um, municipalities Mm -hmm. and the, the group homes that are operated by the municipalities. When I followed up and said, so here's the death count. Has it changed? Because this question was asked six weeks ago. They were like, oh, um, that actually doesn't include any facility in the city of Toronto. And the city of Toronto has half of the group homes managed by municipal fairs in the province. So even the like official opposition questions were not netting the truth. Mm. It, it, it was it was enraging it was completely <laughs> enraging and it's just like just demonstrates how like much of a non-priority disabled people were in this pandemic if like they can't even be bothered to count the number of people who got covid and who died and then they're not reporting that publicly some public health units did report it like hamilton but it was not uniformed and certainly not national i mean we still don't have a national picture on these on this at all um, and the same issue was when I was trying to find the number for how many people died from COVID that they acquired in hospital that took mm. months. And the ministry of health in Ontario said, no, we just don't collect that data. And I, which was a lie, a straight up lie. Yeah. Cause I knew people had that data and they were telling me you have to keep trying and, and go different ways. And so I eventually went to the Canadian institutes for health information and they compiled the list for me. And so that comes out in August, 2021, the first time that we have a national portrait minus Quebec, although Quebec, there was at least some data on it already of how many people died from COVID that they got in hospital. Like, doesn't that seem like something that should be an obvious data point that is being regularly collected and disseminated? It's just, it was just very mind boggling. That people would want to know perhaps even more than just a daily count, but something that is, you know, a little more cumulative. I'm, I'm thinking about August of this year and what the general narratives were here in Canada. I really do think by that time, there was so much more of an effort to just push the idea that the real bad guys here are the anti-vaxxers. And that is what, you know, the, the conflict is. It's not perhaps what anymore, what the government had done. And what you're illustrating here is that even by that point, we still didn't have a very clear picture of the damage that this pandemic did 
to its citizens mostly due to negligence or even perhaps you know, uh, direct wanting pain to yeah. inflicted citizens. So I don't know if you noticed that, but w- w- do you think that there was a real change in the narrative to this idea of the the anti-vaxxer movement and, you know, anti-lockdown sort of movement that kind of shifted from uh, the governmental response? Because I, Christo and I, I remember in the 2020s, we, we were talking a lot more about how terribly Doug Ford was fucking up and how insidious that was. And I feel like in 2021, things kind of shifted a little bit. I'm, I'm wondering what, what you found. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't so much that there was a n- narrative shift, but that the narrative that had been constructed from the previous year and a half finally bore fruit. Yeah. Okay. And so the narrative for the year and a half before that was all we need is a vaccine and we'll be saved. And that was mm. a narrative that was pushed by every single politician, regardless of the, of the political party, yeah. they all were like the vaccine will save us. And they did that at the expense of just talking about the, like the great science behind the vaccine and talking about how great vaccines are. And not that this is going to save us, but that this is an amazing advancement in science and blah, blah, blah. No, our entire salvation was wrapped up in the vaccines. And so when they started the mass vaccination campaign in January through March of people living within long-term care, infections walked off a cliff. And it was this amazing showing that Canadian procurement has been a success, that science has been a success. And once we get everybody in society vaccinated, then it'll all go away. And of course, in those facilities, the vaccination rates were very, very high. People had like individuals go to their room and say, would you like to get vaccinated or not? And the vaccination rate, you know, ends up reaching in the nineties in these facilities, right? Bring that to the general population. And there's no mandatory vaccine law, which I think is probably a good idea. I think that that would have been a disaster if they tried to impose a vaccine, a vaccine mandate um, from the government. Mm -hmm. But I mean, that's something we could debate. It's an interesting conversation to have. But without a governmental vaccine mandate, you couldn't expect to have 100% coverage, which was almost what they had in long-term care and what what seemingly was necessary to get to a level of immunity that would stop the virus from, from circulating to an extent. Of course, it did still circulate a little bit. And so by the time August and September come around 2021, the vaccine campaign has almost reached its limit. Like there's still a couple of more people that will trickle in over the next couple of months, but that trickle is slow. And the lion's share of who is going to get vaccinated has gotten vaccinated. And so then obviously the narrative had to shift. And so there was no discussion about workplace transmission. There's not even discussions about severity, which is what I want to know. Like every one of these outbreaks, what is the severity? We know what the severity is in non-vaccinated people. Are we talking about like people getting COVID and it's just like a cold? Or are we talking about like deathly ICU level COVID still, even though people are vaccinated? So we don't even get that. And instead we get, yeah, a complete obsession with the anti-vax pro-COVID movements that uh, are the reason that COVID's not going away. And it started actually with the nurses who are the nurses and the healthcare workers who refuse to get vaccinated. uh, And then there are outbreaks within long-term care facilities rather than saying, wait, like, are you just operating as normal again? And maybe that's why COVID is, is, is circulating. Like, is it really because you had one nurse who was unvaccinated or is it because a family member came in and they were unvaccinated and then there was a small cluster and then it was propagating because you weren't doing any infection control. Like we were just back to normal. Right. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I think that is, 
really terrifying. Like obviously the, the human misery is something that is difficult for any one person to really quantify when you're dealing with the numbers we are here. It's, it's hard to enter into our minds because it is so horrifying. But one of the, the other horrifying aspects here that I'm, I'm getting from your analysis is just what this means for the next cataclysm that's going to be hitting Canada and what we did during COVID-19 and are still doing in COVID-19 regards uh, regarding the, the media apparatus and the, the politicians that are making decisions that are going to ensure that this happens again. Because basically from what you're, you're describing here, if we're hit with another pandemic level disaster or the very likely environmental natural disasters that have been happening are going to increase in severity. If we're in something like this, where everyone needs to rally and there needs to be this uniformity, what I'm gathering from this analysis is we're not going to do very well. Well, if the, if the plan is to protect the status quo at all costs, then of course we won't. And, and I think that we have to like, not be too fatalistic about this. Canada's COVID response was not what the people wanted necessarily. And we always knew there would be people that wouldn't get vaccinated. I mean, that is statistically obvious. And so even getting mad at them is ridiculous because it's just like at this point, fine, get COVID. Like, I hope you don't die. Like, that's literally where we're at. Oh, I hope you don't die. Oh, sorry, cousins. So and so, I hope you don't yeah. die, right? Yeah, absolutely. But, yeah. but beyond that, like to to have a public policy response that puts so much stock in 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 groups of people who we knew would never get vaccinated unless there was an actual legal mandate imposed upon them, then then yeah, of course, if this happens again, or if it's the extreme heat event uh, with the the BC NDP just kind of shrugging after six hundred people plus died, yeah. Yeah. um, you know, then of course we're going to see this again, but. I think that the, the the really important lessons are that people don't want to see this again. And so the real question is, how do we restore power uh, back into uh, citizen organizing or community organizing that can then actually force politicians to do our bidding rather than just sitting there being like, oh, God, Doug Ford's at it again. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Like if that guy thought that he was going to get beheaded, he would be doing things differently. He yeah. would. He would. You know, it's, yep. It's as well, now as his that. daughter is doing like pro anti-vax things and getting paid for it. So I don't I think he's pretty comfortable. I, I don't think there's that concern, really. He doesn't have that concern because no one is no one is going to like come after him. He knows that he knows that the yep. conservative support in Ontario is is a, is a rock solid 30 percent. <laughs> and if we're talking specifically about what to do in Ontario, it means literally very slow and intentional organizing in every single community to try and push out these kinds of tendencies um, but there's no one who's prepared to do that right now. No one has the time or the capacity or the structures or the resources or the analysis because, I mean, you know, labor and NDP, unfortunately, have demonstrated that they're just not they're just not there. And I don't yeah. know if it's structural or if it's something that we could push into getting them to be there. But certainly the evidence is not looking great. One of the uh, most difficult things for perhaps regular Canadians to understand is a little bit into the the uh, the underworld, if you will, of Canadian um, journalism, how, how that all works <laughs> and, you know, where, where it all goes. It's it's not essentially that the truest, strongest voices get the most play. Right. That, that's not really how it works. So I, I would just love to know from your perspective and your history of, of operating in this space for so long, you know, what is the biggest challenge of trying to present 
leftist, progressive, maybe even socialist perspectives in a mainstream Canadian uh, media setting? Mm -hmm. Well, um, I mean, to maybe to just give you some examples, like I can count on two hands how many interviews I've done about my research mm -hmm. in, wow. in, with mainstream outlets, right? Over, over almost two years and over two years where they were relying nonstop on the same, yeah. on the same people and the same voices. Right. Mm -hmm. um, when we're talking about national television, I did two interviews with CTV. One got spiked and one only happened because they aired something that was so incorrect that the pro COVID anti-vax world started to use it as proof. They, they completely <laughs> miscalculated how many people died in long-term care. They put the number at 97% of Canada's COVID deaths where it was actually at 67 or something like this. Yeah. Um, and so, okay, fine. They'll have Nora Loretto on to correct us for that. Um, I, and otherwise, I mean, for spin doctors, my book, I mean, I've done no big interviews. Actually, I've done almost no interviews at all. I think I've done three period and they're all independent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's hard to get your voice uh, heard when they refuse to hear you. And yeah. it's especially hard because, you know, there were situations where at one point, uh, global uh, journalists reached out to me and were like, this is amazing. Can we visualize your data? Can we work together on a project? I'm like, oh my God, yes, 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 yes. And then it's like, oh, nobody calls me back. Mm. You know? So um, while at the same time, I know that people are relying on it because I'm hearing from journalists all the time that they're relying on it. And I'm spending time yeah. on the phone explaining to journalists what exactly are the problems with data collection and what are the difference in nomenclature and all this kind of stuff. Um, I think the thing about Canadian media is that it's just such a small place. And if you make an enemy somewhere, you're, you're fucked. And yeah. especially if that enemy has, um, is a powerful person. And, um, and it's hard not to make an enemy of the, of the management of the upper, upper tiers of management and certainly the owners because they're frankly evil. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, and so how do you get your message out? It's really, really hard. It's really hard because, you know, you might have uh, some luck with a young journalist and wants to talk to you. Uh, this happened to me with the Globe and Mail. Uh, and then they're doing a story with another journalist and then the other journalist has to say, Oh yeah. Hey, Nora, sorry. I'm going to have to uninvite you to that interview. She didn't know. <laughs> No Jeez. hard feelings. Right. And it's like, and yeah, this is wow. people coming Jesus. from people who I know. Yeah. yeah. And it's yeah. like, yeah, no hard feelings. I get it. And fuck everything about that. And this is well, what I we're, mean, you're like, just we, trying we to talk this. about the people who died. Like, this isn't yeah. like, you know, we're, we're trying to uncover this other great conspiracy about, you know, what's going on here in Canada. It's just, I'm trying to give you information about how, what it's like for the most vulnerable people in our society. And people want to hear about this. So I just, it is so disheartening to hear that even during a time when, when you assume that every journalist would use every resource they could, because like you said, many journalists, and I've experienced that too, when I worked in you know Toronto media, that you're pushed to your limit. You don't have the resources to do what you're supposed to do. You know, you're, they, there aren't 15 reporters covering something that perhaps it should. It's, it's all on you to have a resource like you to, that would be able to share this information and to get it spiked for reasons that are kind of inconsequential. Like I, it does seem like it is deliberately causing a, uh, <laughs> a information not to get out that needs to. And I'm wondering if you'd agree with that. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, just look at my local CBC station. So I live in Quebec city. Uh, our CBC station is very, very small. 
I'm doing national level research and know like Quebec, like the back of my hand. And I knew outbreaks and I, like, I easily could have done a daily update every morning. Cause I was doing this research every night. Uh, and, oh, I studied broadcast journalism yeah. <laughs> like, and, oh, there's only 10 of us in the whole city that speak English enough to be on the radio. Yeah. And even then I've done, I haven't done a single, a single interview about this with, yeah. uh, with CBC, my local station, any of the national stations. I did one with, with New Brunswick TV. Cause they were looking for that analysis. Yeah. Uh, it, it's just, it's just, it's, it's unbelievable. And actually the, the, the New Brunswick interview was funny because we finished the interview and he's like, wow, you're a natural. And I'm like, guy, <laughs> I'm a fuck. I know yeah. you've never heard of me and that's by design. Yeah. A little but insulting, no, eh? Just a little well, bit. I don't know. He was cute. No, he wasn't even trying to be insulting. He <laughs> yeah, really yeah, thought yeah. that I was just yeah. an, an average person who just was interested in data. And I'm like, no, this is the fucking reality for journalists yeah. like that, like me that have no access to the mainstream media. All we can do is quietly toil. And it's like, yeah. are you kidding me? hundred percent. Like, I mean, like when I, I, I did a lot more when I was still in academia and on like the professor's list, you know, you constantly get media calls. Right. And then mm-hmm, it's like mm-hmm. as a left journalist, journalist, once you don't have that academic title that sort of at least sanitizes you a little bit, you yeah. certainly get a lot less calls, even though, again, the stories are still needed. But I think what's really infuriating here is it's not as if they ignored you. They just often just used your data and didn't credit you. And I think like, I don't know if you want to say something about that, but I know that in many cases, whether it was some 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 nonprofit groups, but also some journalistic outlets, uh, either didn't credit you at all, or 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 did very minimally, even as some of them would go on to win, you know, pretty notable awards. And I think that's the mm-hmm. biggest thing here. It wasn't as if they uh, ignored you and and sort of did their own thing, but they they often piggybacked. Uh, I don't know if you want to yeah. vent about yeah, that what a do little you think bit, about or just that, let Nora? people know mm-hmm. about that. Yeah, what do you think? Well, you know, it was funny because the first day that I had released the second day that I had released this data, um, which meant the first day's data, I heard it reported through the radio, my exact figure (laughs) as being attributed to another media outlet. And it was like, yeah, okay, um, sure. Right. And but which was fine. I made it public on purpose. And that's what I wanted it to do. Um, a year later, when when the team of four guys at the Toronto Star win the National News- Newspaper Award for their investigation into long term care, uh, you know they heard from a lot of people who were mad that 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 they you know the accusation was that they ripped off my work, and I do not make that accusation. I don't think that they ripped off my work. I think, I think actually what they did was even kind of sadder was that they literally relied on public data from the Ontario government rather than building their own data. But rather than building their own list. So they're relying on the public official line, like not being journalists, but okay, fine. Um, And one of them was like, I don't even know who she is, was the response, which I mean, again, you don't need to know who I am, but if you are researching long-term care and deaths in long-term care and COVID, either you came across my data or you didn't do your research. Like that's literally the only two options. So like, get out of here with this, like, well, I don't even know who she is. Uh, kind of bullshit line. It's like, guy, you won the award. Like, just fucking be gracious about it. Don't yeah. be all weird. Um, yeah, it, it, it's. I mean, I've I've never won an award for any of the work that I do, and that's fine. And I don't expect to because that's just like where. I mean, I fucking wrote a book on feminism, and I couldn't even win the Canadian Journalism Feminist Award. Okay, so <laughs> um, it's just it's clear that like they just prefer oh court reporting. That's feminist. It's like yeah, yeah it's good, but it's not. That's not that's not advancing shit. Like it's yeah. it's telling a good story but that's not changing anything the way that you're it's gonna be some dude that looks like me that wins it that's what's gonna happen (laughs) well yeah and and so yeah it 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 was i mean it was very um 
uh, uh, frustrating. I would say I wasn't surprised. I wasn't like, Oh my God, what the hell? Um, but, uh, but then, you know, then folks created this GoFundMe, which was amazing and raised, um, money for like to compensate me basically for the work that I've been doing. So that was really, really nice. Yeah, that was a feel good story. I think. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was great to see. Really, that was really good. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, it, but, it's hard not to be fatalistic with all this. I know you're, you're trying to shore us up a little bit, but you know, I feel like we, we hit that a lot on our show, Christo, maybe when we don't even intend to, of just seeing how much really is stacked against trying to impart just like a little bit more humanism in our country through the mechanisms that exist. And, you know, I, I, I guess that is the fundamental question I, I wanted to ask uh, today is, you know, how do you remain optimistic when you have dove right into this seen what's happened, the human misery, the lack of accountability, the possibility of this, excuse me, the possibility of this, you know, occurring again with uh, the same structures that happened that caused all this pain, you know, how do you remain optimistic? Well, you're that. assuming I that I am. Aren't yeah, yeah, that's you? a big, that's well, an awfully I'll, big assumption you, there, you, Andy. You you uh, <laughs> tamped down some of my fatalism earlier, so I'm I am yeah, making right. a bit of an assumption. Well, I mean, there's two different things there. There's there's how do I personally deal with this stuff, um, like as it relates directly to me, yeah. Um, and that has been very hard. That's been really really hard. Um, I I mean, I just finished. I launched the book last week, and I didn't get an interview. Period. Like not one. Right. Uh, and it, like literally Canada's first analysis of the pandemic and no one interviewed me the, the week that it launched. And we've got extra people working on this because we knew it would be a harder book to sell because we knew that people would want to touch it because of the media criticism. And um, I was every day that passed that nothing at all happened related to that book launch felt like uh, really bad. It felt really, really bad. And yeah, I sure. had, yeah, I've been, I've been working on a really big feature that's been also very depressing. And so I just had to bury my head into that feature to try and finish the fact checking side of it. Cause it's almost finished. And that's kind of how I got through that week. And so, you know, if I stare too much into the sun, uh, it'll burn out my eyes. And if I think too much about how impossible it is for me to get anywhere in this industry, it will burn out my brain. And so I try not to, but there are certainly moments where it's very, very difficult to not get really down on it. Because as you say, like, if, if any moment would have been the moment for me to have been able to contribute to public discourse in a public way, it would have during, been during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And the fact that not even that could, could lift the freeze on me and my, my journalism career is like, is pretty bad. Yeah. <laughs> it's really, really depressing. Yeah. Um, and so whenever people ask me like, Oh, what's, what's, what's in your future for you? It's like, there is no future for me. Like all I got is just doing this is just doing the same thing and always going to the next big story and trying to do what I can to get like people's eyes on it. And that's it. That's, that's yeah. my future is my present, which is also sadly my past. <laughs> but um, I do have optimism though, for, uh, how, uh, like the way that the pandemic has transformed people's understanding of the state and understanding of the role that like the political parties play in the state, the role that federalism plays in just destroying things. And I, I think that we are going to see an interesting era of alternatives uh, emerging. You know, we just finished three decades, uh, entering into a new decade, uh, of, uh, of a, of a neoliberal era. And I think that people are really tired of it and are yeah. really looking for something new. And so I have a lot of hope for 
certainly what's coming next in this province after Legault, it'll take some time. It won't be the next mandate, but it'll probably be the mandate after that. I think we're going to see a very incredible left-wing swing. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a lot of creativity and action and passion for action. And, um, and Indigenous land defenders are showing us the way uh, the housing encampment movement is showing us the way. And so there are, there are reasons to be very excited and hopeful. Um, the problem, of course, is that power is going to get even more brutal. And if they do not care about mass death, they obviously will not care about a death here and there. And that means that we will also be entering into a period of time that will be more dangerous than any of us are used to. Um, and so, you know, I don't, I don't tend to look at anything like positively or negatively. I just kind of exist with the contradictions and the realities that, that I can see, but certainly the explosion of alternative media in the past two years has been very, very cool. And I think that that is going to lay the, the foundation for something that will be coming in the next decade. There you go. Excellent. So anything else, Christo, before we, uh, move on, we have a little, a few more questions from our, uh, Patreon supporters that they wanted to ask you. So we're going to No, Yeah, no, for sure. I think we can move on to those. Yeah. Well, I guess most importantly, you know, where do people find you if they're interested and, you know, more about the book, how to get it just all about you. Yeah, sure. Um, so I, uh, can be found, uh, on Twitter at, uh, no lore N O L O R E. Uh, I write for Passage most commonly, and you'll be able to see my next big feature coming up in Chatelaine. So I'm really excited about that. So look out for oh, the wow, January cool, issue, yeah. Chatelaine. Yeah. Oh, and it's it is a big. It's <laughs> such a depressing. Um, it's such a depressing story. Oh my god. Okay. Make sure everyone. Yeah. Look for that. <laughs> Maybe we'll we'll have you on again to uh, lift us up after we read it. So that's good. And your book, <laughs> sure. of course. Your book. What about in your book? In my book. Yeah, you can buy my book at any independent bookstore, um, and you can even get them at the non-independent bookstores too. Um, there is a shortage of them because of these global supply chain issues. So if your local bookstore doesn't have it, you can buy direct from the publisher, which is fernwood.ca. Excellent. Well, thank you again, Nora, for sharing all your insights here. Uh, here on Left Turn Canada, we allow our patrons to ask us some questions over on Discord. And I thought this one would uh, be right up your alley here. It's from Jambalaya username. And uh, the question is, and mind you, I'm probably the only non-French speaker here. Does the <laughs> Quebec Solidaire have any chance of beating the Quebec Liberals and Legault? What is your perspective on a path to victory? Yeah. Um, okay. So Quebec is a province where things shift very quickly overnight. Um, and we've seen that in our lifetimes in 2011 yeah. with the orange wave. And let us not forget that the Parti Québécois went from being a faction of the Liberal Party to a majority government in less than a decade. Yeah. Um, Quebec's leader is not the Parti Québécois. You know, Gabriel Nadeau-Dubois is not René Lévesque, although, I mean, I had a neighbor that was sure he was (laughs) a couple of years ago. So there are some undertones. Um, And we are in some surface similarities in some ways, but they are very different. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, like Nado Dubois is not a philosopher. He's not a deep thinker. He's a very talented orator, which of course, so is René Levesque. Um, I think that we will see, as I said in the interview, we will see a, a swing back, uh, a, a backlash against this far right nationalism from the CAC and the hist- and history shows this. I mean, mm-hmm. again, talking about parallels, there are a lot of parallels that are being drawn between Francois Legault and Maurice Duplessis. 
And I think that, yes, it is very possible that we will see something happen. The Liberal Party in Quebec is is a dynasty party. I don't think that they're dead. I think that there are people that will die, that will die voting for the Liberals in Quebec, but they are very, very wounded and they have not regrouped since the last election. So they will not be a major player off the island of Montreal, I don't think, in the next election. Whether or not Quebec Solidaire will pick up seats, I'm not sure, um, but they will certainly hold the seats that they have, I think. And um, and then the real question is what happens with the Parti Québécois, which I do think is actually going to die. I don't see a path for them. The, the only hope that they had was in a candidate named Catherine Fournier, who is like this young, dynamic member of provincial of National Assembly who got elected and then like sat as an independent because she left the caucus over disagreements. She ended up resigning entirely and just got elected at 29 to be the mayor of Longueuil. Oh, wow. So. Yeah. And so there's like, like Sherbrooke has this first woman mayor and she's progressive and there's a lot of other really interesting things happening at the municipal level, which I do think will have an impact on Quebec's leader's popularity. Um, and so we'll have to see, we'll have to see how the party uh, navigates some difficult issues and they have made some major missteps, but they also are doing good work as well. And so we'll see. There yeah, no, well, we will. We wish like, you know, we're, we're, we're big fans. And I, and I think, I think you're certainly right that, the Parti Québécois and real difficult straits because, you know, with the Quebec liberals, you know, they, they always have that rock solid, like Anglophone Montreal base that, that, that anchors them. Right. And, but I don't know what the PQs, like if, if the, if the nationalist left is, is with Quebec Solidaire and you have the CAQ getting basically half the vote. If you look at the current polling, I don't know what their place is going to be. And it will be really interesting to see, such a major, uh, a major party, like you said, maybe disappear. It'll be very uh, destabilizing for Quebec politics. It'll be fascinating. Yeah, well, keep keep in mind as well that a former NDP federal MP is now running for the Parti Québécois in a by-election in Marie-Victorin. So that is going to be interesting to see yeah. if he can get elected as well as he already has been elected. And he might add a, a 10th person, tie, tie the PQ up with, the, with QS as the second opposition. Yeah. Very good. So I got a, another question here from one of our, our new supporters, uh, Mars, and I, I, I think it's very fascinating uh, look. Uh, we've been talking about it here, and I imagine you have as well, the Wet'suwet'en crisis that's happening in BC and the BC NDP and their responsibility for the ongoing crisis of, of not you know, making changes that uh, are continuing the genocide there. So I, I, the question here is, it's a long one, so I'm going to paraphrase here, but we've seen a lot of people saying due to that action and the inaction by the federal NDP that they're, they're leaving the NDP, they're, they're gone from the party, not only their support, but if they've been a part of it uh, in the grassroots movements, they're now gone. VMARS is asking, instead of just leaving, do you think there's any sort of validity or a real path to victory by trying to come together, banding on mass and presenting the notion of not accepting this as a way of wielding power in a stronger way than just leaving the party? Is there a path here to band together and change the party from within? Is this an incident that uh, you think could you know, foster that much support? No. All right. No, uh, the only thing that the NDP will respond to is external pressure at this point. And I think everybody leaving the party, if they are interested in partisan politics, they have to figure out some way to become an external pressure to the NDP. I know the folks that run the party and I know that that's how they operate. 
and they will do everything possible to maintain power within that party. Mm -hmm. And power is always oriented towards winning. Um, and I also think that disaffected NDPers need to keep in mind that the NDP is a part of the colonial project under yeah. like, mm. it is never ever pretended to not be. Um, yeah. And I think that people get confused that when you hear things like justice for indigenous people or justice for reserve communities, or, you know, all of the issues that we want to see fixed, they still always talk within the colonial framework. And unless the NDP was going to be prepared to stand up and say, we need to destroy Canada and replace the federal arrangement with something, uh, they're always going to be falling into that trap. And so, you know, people on the left need to have like, be very sober about what that means for the obvious limits that, that exist for that party. Yeah. I mean, I think, well, no, I think that's certainly a good point. And there is a long history of the NDP uh, really since probably the 1960s being, you know, sort of linked with a kind of like quote unquote left nationalism. Right. And that mm -hmm. is inseparable from the Canadian state. Usually it's kind of expressed. It was his as an anti-Americanism, right. Public yeah. ownership, uh, you know, uh, union, union independence from the American centrals. Uh, and yeah, you, you can't disconnect that from Canada as, as a, a state that is on stolen land that you, you can't do, you can't do it. I mean, like, look, I think Nora makes a good point because the, again, we, Andy and I have said, I, we can't begrudge people that leave the party yeah. uh, based on the party, you know, uh, not adhering to their principles, but it is true that like leaving the party might not have the effect of putting pressure if there's nowhere to go. I mean, maybe the Green Party, we've talked about that historically, maybe a weakened Green Party is, is easier to take over for a left-wing challenge and that, that, that adds pressure. But it might be the case that leaving the party uh, just leaves the party largely as it is because the party won't have pressure to the left because the Greens aren't to the left. And, you know, that whether it's the Marxist-Leninist Party or the Communist Party of Canada, they don't really have you know, a, a substantive electoral presence. Mm -hmm. One thing people are trying to do right now and whether or not it'll work is, is, is of course uh, debatable or, or what have you, but there is a kind of growing movement from people within the party, including some elected officials and recent candidates to, to, to demand pressure be put on largely led actually by the young new Democrats of Quebec who have kind of started that process. But again, I'm skeptical that that's going to work, if I'm being honest. I mean, mm -hmm. you have some big names. You have Avi Lewis and Romeo Saganash and Angela McEwen and uh, Joel Hardin spoke in the Ontario legislature uh, about about this, you know, gave it on the record calling out John Horgan. But um, I, I don't see Singh that, you know, criticizing Horgan, even though it's very clear what the what the base of the party wants is. Yeah. How many weeks has it been now? How many yeah, weeks has yeah, it been uh, now? When we first they want accountability. Yeah, we want we want him to call Horgan out. Yeah. And he's not doing it. And I don't think that's going to change. But also like to what end? Like Horgan yeah. is the NDP. Yeah. yeah. No, you're right. You're right. right. And so yeah. and this is this is I mean, it was one thing when it was not in pipelines and where most non-Albertan Canadians could say, well, like the NDP supports pipelines. This is really weird. Why are you doing this? But here you have a government dictating what its provincial police force should do, because that's yeah. what the RCMP is. Right. Yeah. It operates as its provincial police force in, in this territory. Yeah. And they don't have to do that. They easily could do something else. And so it's like, this is like, I, I get that Singh is not able to call out Horgan because it's the party. I mean, this is yeah. a real, also a huge problem with the NDP 
in that it needs to have the provincial and federal congruence, which I think yeah. is also a huge problem because yeah. I don't think that that works. I think that there's a whole bunch of examples of why that doesn't work because federalism is a colonial construct. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and, and so, yeah, I think, Krista, you're right that they need to go somewhere. And I don't think that the Greens are the, the, the left option necessarily. The only interesting thing about the Greens is that it's a ready-made party system and it wouldn't take many people to overwhelm it. Well, especially <laughs> but, now, right? Because right. I mean, like if you think <laughs> the last time they had that really, they had that pretty successful 2019 campaign. They were polling really well. There was a lot of optimism and they, they got shellacked this time. I, I, you know, hypothetically, it would be much easier to take it over now. Right. Like, you know, but I yeah. still, I'm skeptical. And we saw how a, a pretty pro Bolivian coup pro neoliberal <laughs> candidate got treated by the party establishment. I wonder what would happen if somebody actually on the left came in and tried to shake that party up. I think the, the infighting could be even more volcanic than it well, was. It would have to be a hostile takeover. Yeah. Like you would literally have to walk in there and expect blood. Right. Yeah, and, well, yeah, and yeah. I, I, you know, having been in campaigns that are pretty vicious and knowing what that, that looks like, I also know that people that have that kind of stomach are few and far between because the left is so weak and struggle is so low. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, if you were going to do it, you would have to be like, openly saying we're firing everybody we don't care about the contracts we will see you in court and we're going to take this party over and there's not that many people that can stand up publicly and say that because then you get really nervous because like oh do i want to go to court oh am i going to lose my mortgage oh yeah, right yeah. all this stuff yeah and that's not what they put in their ad when they were looking for a new leader they said <laughs> yeah, specifically yeah, no. you can't do yeah. that yeah, yeah specifically yeah, right. you can't have legal issues with yeah. the Green party of canada yeah yeah. Yeah. Well, fine. Bring legal issues to me then, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I yeah. guess Nora, that's the, the million dollar question here is for our listeners that are going to be by and large leftists to socialists that are feeling disillusioned now, perhaps more than ever by the NDP, but they still want to be politically engaged. And perhaps they, they do want to feel like they, they have some home in a party, you know, is there any recommendation you would give for listeners like that, that, that want to change. They, they're not feeling the NDP. They want to go mm -hmm. somewhere, but they don't know. they literally have no idea. We've gotten this question a lot. Like where yeah. do they go? Yeah. So there's a couple of options. Um, I think that the most obvious is the communist party. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I say that as someone who would, I, I mean, I have major crit criticisms. Yeah. I, I think a reformist communist party is a contradiction in terms. And I can't believe anyone spends any of their time in a reformist communist party. But anyway, <laughs> That is something that was settled in the 1990s when I was like six or 10 and none of my business. They also don't really have a very strong or very clear presence in Quebec. And so for me, it's just not an option, but yeah. maybe where you are, there is an interesting candidate and there is interesting local infrastructure and the people are cool. And if that's the case, then there's really no reason to not be involved with the communist party. So that's one option. Uh, another option is to create a rival party to the NDP. Um, and that can be done in very activist ways where you might not even uh, make too much of a big deal about being a left-wing party other than you go riding by riding and start targeting uh, the NDP in their votes and in their support and their money. And then that will start to actually put pressure on the party in the way that I think people keep thinking is possible internally, which it's not. The third option is to ditch partisan politics entirely. And mm. it's one thing 
to be active in partisan politics when social movements are strong, but it's a totally different thing to be involved with partisan politics when social movements are weak. Um, and when they're weak, there's no orienting position from the ground on a whole bunch of issues that are feeding into a left-wing party. And so then it means that you're playing politics within a left-wing party that probably is never going to act on those politics anyway. And this is what we see in, in NDP conventions when people organize like their, their butts off to get, you know, certain policies passed. Um, and so, you know, taking a break from partisan politics and actually building up social movement structures is actually what needs to happen before you have a strong left-wing political party. You can look at Quebec Solidaire for an example of this. Like this is a party that was formed by a fusion of, of, of a very small uh, socialist party, left-wing party called Union de Force Progressiste, the UFP, and uh, an offshoot of the women's movement called Option Citoyenne. And they were not a partisan offshoot. They were like looking to get involved in formal politics. They were uh, broadening the women's movement to be uh, anybody who was interested in left-wing social movements, that kind of thing. And so they were rooted in community organizing. And that fusion meant that all of a sudden you had a political party being born out of the strength of social movement struggle. And when you do not have that struggle, things get super weird and completely unanchored and the debates are very theoretical and they spin out in, uh, you know, in conventions or whatever in ways that just don't make any sense. And so I think that, you know, taking a break from partisan politics is not taking a break from politics. It's just yeah. to do the work in the order of operations that it needs mm. to happen in. Yep. There you go. I, I think uh, that's a good place to end it. Thank you so much, Nora, for taking the time. We we made you stay long here, so we do appreciate it. Make sure you pick up her book, check her out online. Sandy and Nora podcast is fantastic. And uh, yeah, thank you again. Cool. And I will actually plug one more thing. If you want to sure. know more about social organizing, social movement organizing in the left and this kind of thing, but through the lens of feminism, though it applies to all movements, I do have another podcast and it's called Take Back the Fight podcast. It's on the Harbinger Media Network, which you mentioned at the beginning. And I really hope other people will listen to it because I think it's actually pretty interesting. <laughs> Absolutely. We'll include links below. So thank you again, Nora. Thanks a lot. <laughs>